Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, a large research collaborative network. Our goal is to improve on patient care through research that leverages big data, artificial intelligence, and precision oncology. I appreciate your support, and you can find the Keras Molecular Minute on all podcast outlets, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you consume podcasts, you will find the Keras Molecular Minute. And today you are in for a treat because I'm hosting Dr. Rana McKay from University of California in San Diego. Our goal is to talk about the top abstracts that were presented at the ASCO GU virtual meeting. So stay tuned, because whether you attended or did not attend the ASCO virtual meeting, you will absolutely enjoy this episode. And without further ado, Dr. Rana McKay on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Well, like promised, Dr. Rana McKay is with me on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Rana, welcome to the show. First of all, introduce yourself to the few people who don't know you, because obviously you are well known in the GU field. We're very happy to have you. Appreciate you taking time. We're actually taping this for context on February 12th in the midst of ASCO GU. Rana, who are you? This is uh, Raina McKay. I'm a GU medical oncologist at UCSD San Diego. I help lead our genitourinary uh, oncology program here. It's an absolute pleasure to be giving some thoughts about GU ASCO. Wish we could be there in person, but it's been a very exciting meeting and, and a very exciting data getting presented thus far. Next year, next year, hopefully in person, right? We keep saying yes. this year. I realize we can't really cover everything under the sun in 2025 minutes. So let's try to pick, I don't know, whichever you want. I think from a prostate, bladder, and kidney, whatever you, you choose, you're the expert. I would say let's try to pick five or six abstracts that you think are clinically relevant and really at the intersection of biomarkers maybe and the benefit of precision oncology and uh, clinical care. So what, where do you want to start? Well, I guess we'll just go with the flow of the meeting in uh, Thursday being prostate day and Friday bladder day and, and uh, Saturday kidney day. So starting with prostate, I think we saw the results of the ASICS trial that were presented by uh, Dana Rathkoff. This was a randomized placebo-controlled double-blind phase three trial looking at the combination of apalutamide plus abiraterone versus abiraterone alone in patients with chemo-naive metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. And really the top-line data are that the combination of both apalutamide and abiraterone resulted in a 31% reduction in the risk of radiographic progression or death, and the trial was positive and met its predefined um, endpoint. However, there was uh, no difference in overall survival uh, between the arms and I think whether this regimen is really going to be taken up in clinical practice is yet to be determined. There was a very similar trial that was conducted through the cooperative groups and presented by Dr. Michael Morris, looking at the combination of enzalutamide and abiraterone. 
that demonstrated an improvement in PFS, but then no improvement in overall survival. And certainly with combination therapy, there's increased toxicity. So I do think that that is a key trial. Enzalutamide and Abby? Yes, that was a cooperative group trial that was conducted looking at dual you know, AR targeting in the castration resistance setting. So yeah, so I think this from, from the, pros- with regards to prostate cancer, I think that was a um, important trial um, that was presented. It was the first time that we had seen data reported from um, the ASIC study, um, and that was landmark. I think other trials in prostate cancer that were presented, we saw a follow-up data from the impotential 150 study, which was looking at, you know, really more biomarker-driven data of the combination of hepatocertib plus abiraterone versus abiraterone alone in first-line CRPC that were presented by Dr. Johan de Bono. You know, he presented some elegant work regarding really defining thresholds for P10 IHC loss and that the greater proportion of cells that demonstrated P10 loss, the greater the degree of benefit. Um, Additionally, there was some elegant biomarker work that was presented um, for patients that harbored P10 loss based on NGS and then also those that had PI3KA AKT alterations, in addition to being P10 altered by NGS and demonstrating a, a benefit in that subset of patients who actually had more than one alteration, you know, in the pathway or had other alterations beyond P10 um, in the pathway. And those patients um, actually seemed to have more inferior outcome, but seem to derive benefit from the combination of apatocertib. Again, this is looking at radiographic progression-free survival. Um, We still are awaiting overall survival data. And I think for this regimen to really be practice changing, I think we're going to need to see an overall survival signal in, you know, whether it be in the overall population or a subset or a biomarker-driven population, I think we're going to need to see some sort of signal of OS benefit. Are we ready in prostate? Do you believe that radiographic progression-free survival is a surrogate to overall survival at a particular endpoint, like say two years or three years, or we don't have data yet to correlate? Uh, We still have to wait for overall survival. I think it can be a surrogate, but I ultimately think for us to move, ultimately we want therapies that are gonna make people live longer. And I do think we need to be able to prove that our therapies can do that. And, uh, you know, I think it's one thing to improve PFS, but I think overall survival is important. Now, I think in the metastatic castration resistant setting where the natural history of the disease is short, I don't think it's unreasonable where to have a bar of over improvement of overall survival. Now, in the localized setting or in the biochemically recurrent setting, um, where the natural history of the disease is quite long, I think we have developed appropriate intermediate endpoints to allow for early approval then with further validation of overall survival. And we've seen that in the context of the non-metastatic CRPC trials that all used um, MFS as a primary endpoint and then actually had approvals based on MFS, but then subsequent delivery of improvement of overall survival. And I think the goal is that we'll even come up with hopefully even earlier endpoints. Um, The Proteus trial is currently enrolling patients, and that's a neoadjuvant trial, which has a dual primary endpoint of MFS 
and pathologic um, complete response. And if we can, like as was done in, in the breast cancer world, if we can develop intermediate endpoints of a pathologic response six months after somebody has surgery for approval, for drug approval, and then of course, await that MFS and OS data over time, then I think we can get drugs into the clinic much sooner. Yeah, that's a good point. There are a lot of folks who, when you talk about oral survival, they worry about the length. I mean, we've done a very good job in prostate cancer. So, you know, there's always the sense that overall survival is just going to take a long time to do mm-hmm. that. When you talk about uh, radiographic progression-free survival, are we still talking bone scan and CAT scans or are imaging for prostate cancer now? I mean, there, I heard, yeah. I'll admit, I haven't, um, as I told you before we got on the air, I haven't had a chance to look at ASCO-GU, but I heard some trickling news uh, that there's some imaging data and so forth. What's going on there? Well, I think it was a, there was a very exciting session on imaging and and really the, the wild west of uh, PSMA imaging and um, the good, the bad, the ugly. Ugly that was uh, presented on uh, Thursday morning with with actually probably one of the best um, virtual talk presentations that I have ever seen thus far. So kudos to Delkin who who gave an excellent presentation on where we're at with PSMA imaging. But essentially now with the FDA approval and likely soon to be commercialization of um, PSA imaging in prostate cancer, I think we're really opening up on leashing, you know, a new technology that's just going to go um, viral. And I think we need to figure out how to appropriately apply that technology, how to use that technology to help guide clinical care in the appropriate context, and whether that ends up improving patient outcomes. Certainly, many studies have demonstrated that, yes, PSMA imaging has changed management, but the question is, in my mind, is that change in management associated with an improved outcome? If you end up, you know, holding back a a localized treatment in somebody that has PSMA positive disease on novel imaging, but not a CT bone scan, or you end up, you know, treating with focal therapy in the context of finding disease, like how does that actually improve outcomes? And I think the problem is we're going to end up in a situation where ultimately we need randomized studies to help answer some of these questions to see if this modality change and integration of this modality into care is is going to actually be beneficial and using it to guide therapy. But once you've unleashed that modality and it's readily available for everyone, yeah. Sometimes the conduct of such studies can be difficult. Yeah. Okay. Anything else in prostate before we talk bladder? No, I think that's the the key stuff. There was a couple of studies of um, you know IO plus docetaxel, um, you know, with some exciting you know early anti tumor activity. But I think the story is still early for those um, you know from uh, Keynote three six five. And I believe Dr. Fazazi um, presented the uh, Checkmate 9KD data, but those were in, presented in the rapid abstract session of, of chemo plus IO. And was that just a phase two or is it compared to chemo alone or IO alone? Or? No comparative single arm studies um, demonstrating signal of efficacy of the combination, but I think it's, it's hard, to te- hard to tease out sort of the degree of magnitude there you know, given that docetaxel is a very effective agent in prostate cancer. Okay, let's move to bladder, which I think if we were talking about this 10 years ago would have been, okay, there's nothing in bladder. Let's move on to, right? (laughs) 
Yes, yes. It seems like bladder is going to take over prostates. What's happening in the bladder world? So a lot of exciting data that got presented in bladder. Um, you know, I think the, the primary results of EV301 um, were presented by Tom Powell's. This was the phase three study of um, fortumab vidotin versus chemotherapy in patients previously treated, in patients with previously treated locally advanced or metastatic urothelial cancer. Um, we know that EV is an antibody drug conjugate that's um, directed at Nectin-4 and has actually already received FDA approval in the U.S. And this study was really the confirmatory trial uh, you know, for efficacy and for overall survival. And patients that were enrolled on this study had to have uh, received um, prior PD-1, PD-L1 therapy or and prior a platinum-containing therapy. So this was in the post-platinum, post-IO um, setting. And um, the combination, the EV essentially demonstrated a statistically significant improvement in overall survival. The median overall survival was 12.8 months compared to 8.97 months with uh, chemotherapy. The hazard ratio was 0.7, which was statistically significant. And so I think this really has solidified this agent as a very active and effective agent um, for patients with you know, heavily pretreated um, urothelial carcinoma. We certainly, this has remained an unmet need in the clinic. And so this is a very positive thing. Additionally, responses were, you know, much higher in the EV group compared to the chemotherapy group at, you know, 40.6% compared to 17.9%. You know, I think this this drug is here to stay. And I think it's probably um, going to you know, I think we're going to be seeing uh, studies uh, that look at combinations, combinations of EV-Pembro and, and other combos, um, and probably see this drug move earlier on in the landscape, both for metastatic disease and, and um, also in the localized setting. But the, these are patients after failing chemo, including platinum, or let's say platinum ineligible, and after failing PD, you know, IO therapy would have been probably hospice usually. I mean, is there anything you would have given like before, like go back five years ago, what would you have done with a patient like this, even with a good PS? I mean, really, I mean, the, the, the control arm in this study was basically single arm, single agent chemotherapy that has basically a very poor track record, maybe responses 10 to 15%, maybe in some series, 20% if you're lucky, but, you know, single agent docetaxel, single agent um, paclitaxel, that was basically the the comparator. And it was kind of physician's choice of uh, one of three single agent chemotherapy regimens. And Rani, um, you mentioned it's directed the EV to under, um, directed to Nectin-4. Mm-hmm. How often you see that in bladder tumors? So not presented in this study, but it tends to be very highly expressed, which is why they did not conduct a selected, uh, did not collect, conduct a study in a selected patient population. It's present in probably greater than 90% of urothelial tumors. I think one of the, the bigger questions is sort of, you know, application of drugs like this to non-urothelial variant histology urinary tract tumors, um, whether they be upper or lower tract. I think there's also kind of a kind of some it's needing to get some data around non-urothelial based uh, bladder malignancies. Okay. What else in bladder? The other really um, important study that warrants us um, discussing is the adjuvant trial of nivolumab. So this was the uh, first results from the phase three checkmate 274 trial that were presented by Dean Bajorn from um, MSKCC. And really, this is a landmark study. I mean, this is a landmark study because we're seeing 
a checkpoint inhibitor improve, you know, disease-free survival in the adjuvant setting um, for a genital urinary malignancy? And this is, I think, the beginning of many studies that are going to be reported out, hopefully in the next several years of adjuvant or perioperative IO-based therapies. So this was a study um, that took patients that had YPT2 to YPT4A disease or um, YP lymph node positive muscle invasive uh, urethelial carcinoma who had um, received neoadjuvant um, cisplatinum chemotherapy or patients who had T3, T4 disease or lymph node positive disease who hadn't received neoadjuvant chemotherapy and were not eligible or refused adjuvant chemo. And basically within 120 days of their surgery, they were randomized to receive nivolumab um, versus um, placebo. This was a placebo controlled trial. And the primary endpoint was disease-free survival in the intent to treat population and disease-free survival in patients that had uh, PD-L1 positive tumors. Um, they had stratification factors based on receipt of prior neoadjuvant um, chemotherapy, nodal status, and PDL1 status. So this was essentially a landmark study, I think, with regards to disease-free survival. There was a statistically significant improvement in disease-free survival in the intent-to-treat population of you know, NEVO versus placebo with a median um, DFS of 20 uh, months compared to 10.9 months with a hazard ratio of 0.7. That was statistically significant. And then when we look at the um, PDL1 um, positive patients, we actually see a greater degree of benefit with the median not yet reached for the NEVO patients and the placebo um, at 10.8 months. The hazard ratio there was 0.53. Um, you know, when you look at the subset analysis, there appears to be a clear benefit across all subsets that were evaluated based on age, gender, region, um, ECOG performance status. So this and, is this is practice changing. You know, I think right now it's it's you know again this this whole concept of overall survival. So we'll see if it will end up being practice changing. You know, I I think that bladder cancer is a tough disease and you know, advanced metastatic bladder cancer can really, you know, be difficult to treat. Patients can be pretty symptomatic from their disease. Also knowing the side effect profile of, you know, nivolumab, while there can be some severe IO mediated tox, it's, it's generally a well-tolerated regimen. And so for this disease that is very difficult to treat, it may be an, it may be enough that um, an FDA approval will happen based on a DFS only. So I, I don't see that being unreasonable in this context when we parallel to sort of what's happening and what happened in RCC with the approval of sunitinib. You know, I, I think this is even a much different scenario than that with a different drug and a different disease type um, that generally advanced bladder cancer has a pretty poor you know, median overall survival when you just take all comers. And, and many patients actually don't even see therapy or maybe at best may get one line of therapy. So I think because of the nature of this disease and the nature of the therapy, this could potentially be practice changing. I think we're all eagerly awaiting, you know, additional data from this study and, and what the FDA will decide to do with this data. So anything in kidney? 
And you had a presentation, by the way. We have to, you know, we have talked. Uh, anything in kidney, and then I promise I'll let you go in less than five minutes. So kidney, you know, such exciting data. Um, so we're kind of still in the midst of the meeting. And uh, so uh, we haven't yet seen all the full presentations with regards to kidney, but the abstracts were released on Monday. And I think the top line, the top, you know, data to be presented, probably the top data to be presented at the entire meeting is from the CLEAR study. So the CLEAR study was a randomized phase three trial that looked at the combination of lumvatinib plus pembrolizumab versus lumvatinib plus everlimus versus sunitinib in patients who had advanced CLEAR cell RCC that were treatment naive Patients were randomized one to one to one to receive one of those three regimens. And essentially, when we are comparing the Lempem combo to Sinitinib, the median PFS was 24 months for the combination of Lempem compared to 15 months for Lenev compared to nine months for Sunitinib with a hazard ratio for Lempem for PFS at 0.39. Um, with regards to the overall survival data, um, medians not yet reached for all three of the um, arms of the trial, but the OS hazard ratio for um, LENPEM to SUTEN comparison was 0.66. Um, so this is incredibly exciting data. Um, the response rates from LENPEM were at complete response rates were at 16% with the LENPEM combo with the objective response rate of around 71%. So I think we're really eager to get to the presentation tomorrow that's gonna to be presented. I think the data, the essentially the improvement of overall survival, PFS and objective response um, with the combination is, is exciting. I think we need to tease out the baseline characteristics of these patients, who are they? How does this trial fare in the landscape of patients with metastatic um, RCC and now what will be, you know, the fifth uh, regimen that has demonstrated, you know, um, some efficacy um, in this space. We've got Nevo Ipi, we've got Pemaxi, we've got Avulamab Axi, we've got Nevo Cabo, and now we've, um, we're going to have, you know, Lempem. And so I think there's going to be, you know, we're in a wealth of riches here. So I think teasing out the data is going to be critically important. And I have to give one more plug. I have to give a big plug to Monty Powell. Um, he's going to be presenting the data from the PAPMED study that was run uh, through SWOG, looking at uh, different VEGF TKIs for MET-driven papillary RCC tumors, large um, cooperative group study, a clear unmet need, non-clear cell RCC con you know, continues to be an unmet need with regards to treatment. And these patients are historically left out of clinical trials. And that study demonstrated that um, the combination of cabozantinib um, resulted in a median PFS of 9.2 months compared to 5.6 months um, with a significant hazard ratio of 0.61. It has really solidified cabozantinib as the go-to agent for MET-driven papillary RCC. Um, that trial had enrolled four arms and the savalitinib, crizotinib arms were um, you know, closed due to futility um, midway through the trial, and and then the sutent cabozantinib arms were left onto a crew, and, and so you know that's a huge um, effort through the cooperative groups. So congratulations to Monty for that. 
Well, we can spend another hour talking about ASCO GU, but this is really very nice, concise summary of uh, several abstracts that were presented, and I, I just can't thank you enough. I hope that we get together in person next year in San Francisco in 2022. I can't believe we're talking 2022 already. But uh, Rana, I'm, I'm very grateful for your time. Appreciate you taking time to busy schedule during, during a very busy ASCO virtual meeting. We will air this episode in a couple of weeks just for our listeners so they know that we, we stole Rana during the actual meeting. So, we can <laughs> this episode. so I appreciate that. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate you listening to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I hope you enjoyed this quick, 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 quick wrap-up of ASCO GU with Dr. Rana McKay from UCSD. UCSD, a member of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Keras Life Sciences. I appreciate you taking the time. Please let me know what we can do to make this podcast better. You can send me an email to cnabhan at krsls.com. You can find me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan and send me a direct message. Until next time, take care.